So there have been times, really throughout history, when an, an, an event is so unprecedented or historically significant that it creates a new normal. Right? And we can think of things like the Civil War or World War II or certain kind of innovations like the invention of the light bulb or the car or air travel. But we weren't, we weren't around for, you know, most of us weren't around for any of those things. And so the one I want to talk about actually happened a lot more recently on, July, on uh, excuse me, January 9th, 2007. This is much more recent. And uh, it started like this. This guy was up on a stage and he said, every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. This seems to be the kind of thing that we're talking about, right? And he said, today, we are introducing three revolutionary products. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. The third is a breakthrough internet communications device, an iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. And then he goes, these are not three separate devices. This is one device, and we are calling it iPhone. And then the crowd goes crazy. There's this, there's this conference, right? Obviously, that person is Steve Jobs. And uh, Albert is also nodding his head very fervently right now as I'm, as I'm telling the story. Um, and he says, today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And let's be honest, uh, they did, right? Because since that day, a phone has never been of just a phone. Uh, a new normal had been established, and now if you don't have your phone for a moment, you have like a slight panic attack, right? Like if you don't know where your phone is and you're home, you have this weird feeling like you feel naked or something, like you feel like something's wrong. And if you're out and you don't have your phone, if you leave your house without your phone, you literally feel like you're in danger, like, like, like you're in danger. And the thing that you are in danger of is being out of touch, like incommunicado, right? Like being unreachable. What if something happens? What if there's an emergency? What if somebody needs to get a hold of me? You literally, like that's how we feel, right? We literally feel like something's wrong if we don't have our phones with us. And if you think about it, your phone really, it knows everything about you, right? It, it knows what you did, where you were, how you spend your time. It, it keeps all your secrets. It shares all your moments. Like if your phone could talk, it would be your best friend. And it would know way more than you. It would, it would know way more about you than your best friend actually does. And before January 9th, 2007, a phone was just a phone. And since that date, uh, we'll never go back. Now, I consider, like I think we're in such a time right now, except it's not about phones. Right? Life's definitely going to change. Uh, the way we watch a movie is probably going to change. The way you travel is probably going to change. The way you vacation is probably going to change. But the question is, uh, what will be the new normal of faith? Like, will there be a new normal 
when it comes to the church. And I'm not just talking about social distancing or wearing a mask or how sanitary the buildings that we gather in are going to be. Now, we've been in a series uh, exploring God's purpose in suffering, not the, the reasons of, uh, for suffering per se, because we can't always know those, like specifics, why specific things happen, we can't really say. But what we've been looking at is how God encourages us to find purpose in the midst of suffering, right? How we can uh, see what God does in the midst of suffering. And, you know, we've looked at throughout this series uh, repentance, holiness, awakening to the idea of urgency, sacrifice, um, you know, by way of how, how our sacrificial love in the midst of suffering can be an example of Christ. And um, today, we're actually going to conclude this series today. We're going to look at the idea of resettlement. Resettlement. Uh, what does that mean? And how can we step into this idea? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, uh, let's open them up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Acts 8, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. It's right there up on your screen if you don't have your Bible in front of you. Acts 8, 1 through 5. We're going to be looking at kind of the idea of, of resettlement and how uh, this is one of God's purposes in suffering. This is God's word, and it says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, I'm going to give you uh, kind of the main idea for today. God's purpose in suffering is to resettle his people for the advancement of his glory on earth. God's purpose in suffering is to resettle his people for the advancement of his glory on earth. Now, uh, the thing about Acts is a lot of times when people talk about Acts, what people remember about Acts is Acts 2. You know, and Acts 2 is a description of the church. And in fact, many people have quoted Acts 2 to me. You know, and I've had many discussions about, with people about kind of the Acts 2 church. The Acts 2 church is often referenced by, uh, you know, Christians who think of what their ideal church should be. And if you're unfamiliar or you don't remember, let's, let's look quickly at Acts 2. This is Acts 2.41. It says, So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I've had many a person tell me that this is what the church should be, meeting every day in the, you know, together, you know, gathering around the word and prayer and the breaking of bread. And, and um, this is often brought up when people think of kind of the ideal church. This is what the church is meant to be. Now, um, I'm sure it was amazing uh, it was probably necessary at that early stage of development of the church. Now, unfortunately, if you go back a little bit before, you know, like we're in Acts 8 and we'll come back to it, but we've gone back to Acts 2. If you go back a little bit further to Acts 1, remember what Jesus says when he is ascending up into heaven. Right, so let's look quickly at Acts 1. This is Acts 1.8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he says, this is, this is what he tells them to do. This is basically, this is the mandate. This is the plan. He says to his disciples as he is ascending up into heaven, hey, you guys are going to be my witnesses. You are going to bear witness to me, to the gospel, to what I have done, to the years of ministry that we spent together, to the life that I walked on this earth, to the death that I died sacrificially for your sake, for the sake of the forgiveness of your sins, to take on the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to face that judgment that I died, that I was buried, that I was resurrected from the dead on the third day, and that I, you know, I was on this earth, that I visited people, that I appeared to people in my resurrected form, and that I ascended into heaven. You are going to be witnesses to that. Stay in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power. And when it comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the city that they're in. In Judea, that's the region that they're in, the kind of wider, bigger region that they're in. Samaria, the neighboring region, and to the ends of the earth. So they're saying this is going to spread from here, where you are, to the ends of the earth. And yet, the first seven chapters of Acts is really just in Jerusalem. They're just staying in Jerusalem. So that Acts 2 church that's meeting every day, that is gathering around the Word every day, that's praying every day, that is breaking bread every day, they didn't go anywhere. They just stayed together. Now, Acts 8 establishes a new normal for the church. Because the ideal church is no longer the Acts 2 church. The one where thousands of people come to Christ after one sermon. I mean, that would be great. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to preach a sermon one day. And thousands of people come to Christ on just that day. And it does sound very appealing, everyone to spend every day in the temple courts together, reading and praying and breaking bread. But that church is not going out of Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, when you go back to Acts 8 and you look at it and you see what happens, they are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. The narrative thread of Acts doesn't follow the established church 
or even the character of the disciples. It follows the advancement of the gospel. It follows where the gospel goes. Right? The Bible in general doesn't follow certain characters. It follows the movement of God and his message. That's, that's kind of the way that the Bible works. Right? So it follows Peter through his ministry in Jerusalem. Then it goes to Philip and it follows him to Samaria. Then it goes to Paul and his various companions, as he really goes throughout the Greek world, goes to a city, to a new region, he goes there, and what does he He resettles there. So he goes from, he's uprooted from where he is from his entire life. Paul, who is, you know, Saul, who's known as Saul, who in Acts 8 is the one actually persecuting the church. You know, in Acts 9, we find that his calling, he's called by Jesus and he's saying, you're the one who's going to take my gospel to the Gentiles. And he travels from city to city, region to region, carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have not yet heard and believed. It is through, it's not until the persecution comes. It's not until this suffering comes that God's people start to resettle in other regions, that they are scattered and they resettle in other regions where the gospel is not known. This is the pattern of the gospel. The story doesn't follow the one who settles. At least that's not the main plot. It doesn't stay in Jerusalem with Peter and the, and the apostles, and then you get these snippets of what's going on with Paul. No, no, no. It complete, remember, these are the disciples, right? These are the main characters, or you know, the, the main supporting characters, I should say, of Jesus' ministry of the gospels. But in Acts, it doesn't stay with them. It goes with Paul, this new guy, because he's the one carrying the gospel to new places. The main movement of the story follows the one who resettles, who is uprooted and moved, who is commissioned and sent. It doesn't stay at home with Israel and its sons. It follows Joseph into Egypt. It doesn't cover Moses' years in the palace. It picks up when he ventures out into the wilderness and does battle with the gods of Egypt. Little G gods, quote-unquote gods. It doesn't give us the 30 years of Jesus' life at home as a carpenter. It gives us the three years of his traveling ministry, taking the gospel, preaching the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, the narrative of the Bible often follows the sojourners, the wanders, the exiles, the foreigners. Not because the rest of the details are insignificant, but because the epicenter of God's movement is the advancement of his glory. Now, the coronavirus will present a new normal. The question is, what will your new normal look like? Now, I want us to be convinced to redesign the pattern of our lives around the purpose of the advancement of God's glory, right? To take this opportunity to think, well, maybe is this, does God want to resettle me, to reposition me, whether that be physically or perhaps mentally and emotionally and spiritually, to put me in a different place. Now, how can we do that? How can we step into that truth? I'm going to offer us three things here, okay? First thing, reconsider your view of God. Reconsider your view of God. 
do you realize how vast and powerful God is? Because, like, you know when God, when, when uh, Jesus calls the disciples, do you know that passage when he, he goes, right, and they're fishing and he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? Do you know what the most powerful part of that is? It is not the fact that Jesus rearranges the words. Now, I know that we like stuff like that, right? It's kind of a clever play on words, right? They're fishermen. Jesus goes to fishermen, and he says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Ooh, clever, right? Now, the thing is, I don't think that that is the most powerful part of that statement, right? If a random stranger came up to you today and says, hey, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, are you going to be like, oh, wow. You know, like if you're, if, you're a, if you're a baker, right, and, and, and some random stranger comes in to your bakery and says, come follow me and I will make you, you know, a baker of the bread of life or something like that. Like, are you going to be like, oh, wow, that is so, that is amazing. That's so clever. Now I'm going to go follow you. You know, if, if President Trump came up to you and said, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers. Like, are you going to think, Wow. No. Do you know what's impressive? Do you know what's incredible about the statement? It's the fact that God is the one saying it. That's what, that's what makes it amazing. That's what makes that calling amazing. That the one who is calling is God himself. That he has a specific calling for you. That he wants to be in relationship with you. And that he has a purpose for you. That's amazing. Now, this is important today because there is a notion kind of floating around that Christianity is kind of old and tired, right? That simply reading the Word and sitting at God's feet and seeking Him daily and and fasting and spending time in in solitude and spending time in silence, that's just not going to work anymore, right? Like, that's outdated. And we live in a sophisticated era and we're advanced and we're smarter than that. And our generation has, has finally figured it out. You know, this old school way of just kind of preaching the gospel, just kind of sharing the gospel with people. That's just, you know what, that's old. That's not going to work anymore. We need to be a little more nuanced. We need to be a little more clever. But, you know, that's, that's kind of what every generation says. Every generation has always thought it was the smartest generation. That's the worldly thinking. And what you find, unfortunately, in the church is, you know, too often, uh, this isn't always the case, obviously, but too often you find uh, a lack of depth in seeking and understanding the Word of God. Right? Here's the truth, and we have to understand this because of the atmosphere, the, the world that we live in. Transformative truths about God, they don't fit in tweets. They just don't. Right, I mean, we, we love it. We love those little uh, tweetable lines, right? Especially when they flip the words around, right? Like, you know, when it's like, uh, you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, look, that's a great quote. That's a great line. I've heard it quoted many times. I've seen it a ton on social media. And that's great. But is that the same? Like, is that as transformative as just reading Philippians 2 and just, discovering the humility of, of Christ in the incarnation? 
that being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He took the likeness of a servant. You know, he emptied himself. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Is, is that kind of thing, that kind of truth, can you capture that in a tweet? No, you can't. See, the, 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 tr- the powerful trans, like you got to believe that in here there is more powerful transformative truth. Right, that th- this is where the most profound statements about God are. Right, like, like those statements, they don't come from a book or, or you know, even, I mean, great men like, like Tim Keller or John Piper, like, they don't have, they don't say the most profound things about God. God says the most profound things about God. The thing, like, we have to know what God says about himself. Right? Let me, I'll give you just one, one, here's one passage, Psalm 50. Psalm 50, 10 to 15, right? It says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Like the thing is, you have to know what God claims about himself. Right? Because God doesn't claim to be like chill or kind of fun or bingeable. Or tweetable. That's not what God claims to be. You know, uh, like I've been watching, I've been watching The Last Dance. <laughs> it's this, uh, if you don't know, I'm sure many of you know, but if you don't know, it's this uh, documentary, docu-series on uh, ESPN. It's about Michael Jordan, and it's about his last season, or it's, it's about the Bulls, really, but it's mostly about Michael Jordan. And there's this thing about uh, Michael Jordan one of the things that's fascinating about him is that there's this matter-of-factness that he has about his own greatness. You know, he's kind of just matter-of-fact about it. It's kind of arrogant, right? Um, there was this, there's this part where he talks about um, the 92 finals when he's, he's going against Clyde Drexler, who is this other great player who plays the same position as Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan said that when they were comparing them, when they were comparing Jordan to Drexler, he found it insulting. Like he was insulted by it. That, that they could possibly compare this other player to him. Right? And that, there's something about that, that it's Jordan. And of course, he won that finals and he was awesome in it, right? It has the famous shrug game as a part of that finals where he, he you know, hit a bunch of threes. And, um, you know, when I watch that, just as a sports fan, I'm like, that's awesome. It's awesome that he is matter of fact about his greatness because... He delivers on the court. Now that, that is, you got to realize then, when you think about God, okay, God is frankly matter-of-fact about his greatness. And you have to realize, if, if we don't feel awe in the presence of God, like if we don't feel 
overwhelmed and honored by the fact of being called by God because this is what God himself claims about himself, that he is this amazing and this powerful and this great. Either God is lying, God is wrong, or we simply do not see him for what he is. It can't be something in the middle, right? It can't be like, oh, well, you know, God's just, he's just kind of fun. But he's never claimed to be that. God has never claimed that his place in your life should be like a little piece of it, like a little corner of it. And that's fine. If God has a little corner of your heart, that's okay. No, God never says that in Scripture, right? God never says, like, I'm, I'm, I'm cool to be just one of the many gods in your life. No, God, God never says that. There is an awe to be held, to be beheld in God. And what I would say is that this is a chance to reconsider what we think about God and whether he's supposed to fit into our plans or we're supposed to fit into his. So that would be my first application point, how to step into this idea that perhaps this suffering is a chance for God to resettle us for the purpose of the advancement of his glory, the advancement of the gospel. Reconsider your view of God. Here's the second thing we can do. Reposition yourself for the mission of God. Reposition yourself for the mission of God. Now, let's look at that Matthew 4 passage I just um, referenced. Matthew 4, 17 through 23, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, I heard, I heard this... Um, I heard this message from Francis Chan a few months ago. He was explaining why he was leaving America to go overseas on missions. And um, he described his feeling in this way. And I'm just going to kind of gonna read what he said. He said, I feel like I've been fishing in the same pond my whole life. And now there's thousands of other fishermen at the same lake and everyone's lines are getting tangled and everyone's fighting over stupid things. And one guy tries some new lure and we go, oh, he caught a fish, let's try that. And it just feels like, what are we all doing here? What if I heard of a lake that's like five, a five-mile hike away and no one's fishing it? And they're saying, man, the fish are biting. Just throw a hook in there and they'll go for it. Man, I'll make that five-mile hike if I love fishing. And then he says, but what would, what would keep me at that same pond, that same pond where there's thousands of other fishermen, where everyone's going after the same fish, and everyone's trying to, you know, there's some new lures, and every time somebody catches one fish, somebody's impressed, and everybody wants to go try that. 
He says, what would keep me at that same pond instead of going on a five-mile hike to a lake where there are no other fishermen but tons of fish? He says, I'll tell you what would keep me at that pond is if I built a house on that pond and all my friends have houses on that pond and we don't even fish that much, but we just talk and we hang out and we play and I don't want to leave my friends. But if my calling is to go fish and there's no one fishing over there, then why wouldn't I go? Where is God calling you to be? Have you asked yourself that? Have you ever asked yourself that? Where is God calling you to be? Now, I'm not necessarily saying you have to move to another country or even another city. In fact, that's not even possible right now. Right, Heather, who's supposed to be on missions right now, can't even go on missions because she's, she's stuck here essentially for the time being. So I'm not saying that this has to necessarily be about you making a move right now. I'm talking about putting everything on the table. Because there are simply things that we outright tell God we're not going to do. Isn't that, isn't that right? Don't we frame the way that we talk to God in such a way that it's kind of multiple choice. It's kind of we are the ones offering the choices to God and saying, God, you can choose between these limited choices. Right? This is kind of like when Micah comes up to me and says, you know, he, he likes to watch things and we've been, you know, much more lenient about what he can watch these days because of the coronavirus because we can only handle so much. And so, you know, we, we got to just put on some sometimes, you know, some Disney Plus or something. And he'll, be, he'll come up to us and he'll be like, um, you know, Dad, can I watch this or can I watch this? As if those are, as if that is the, the limit of the choices. It's like, no, you can watch nothing, right? And you can go over there and, and you, can, you can play with your toys or you can do some work, right? It's like as if he is framing it in such a way where he has decided what the choices are. You know, or sometimes when he wants to eat something, or Josiah does it, he's a little bit more of a picky eater, but he'll be like, I'll eat this or this, right? I'll eat, I'll eat uh, this pop with something, or I'll eat, you know, he's as if he's the one who sets the menu. Look, isn't that the way that we kind of talk to God sometimes? And then we use the pattern of our life as confirmation that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing do you ever do that? You apply for a job, and then you get the job, and then by getting the job, you say, this must be what God wants me to do. Um, what are you talking about? That's like me going to a restaurant, ordering the most unhealthy meal, and then when it comes out saying, this must be what God wants me to eat. There are natural things that happen when you do stuff, right? Just because it happens doesn't mean that's what God wanted. Putting it all out there and then saying, see, like, here's, here's, here's the thing, right? Jesus doesn't say, I'll force you to be fishers of men. Right? Hey, you guys, I'm going to force you to be fishers of men. He doesn't say, I'll force you to follow me so you can be fishers of men. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. If you follow me. See, that's what's implied there. If you follow me. Meaning you have the choice. You have the choice to follow Jesus 
or not follow Jesus. It is not something that just automatically happens. It is not something that is circumstantially based. Well, this is where I am, so this must be where I'm supposed to be. That's not the way that it works. The way that it works is you go to Jesus, and you don't take anything off the table. You don't say, well, God, I know I'm not supposed to be on missions. I know I'm not supposed to go cross-culturally. I know I'm, I must be here right now. I know that for sure. How do you know that for sure? Did you ask God or did you tell God? Here is the blessing of God right now. A lot of our patterns have been stripped away. Right? He knows our hearts. Okay? He knows our hearts. He knows it's hard for us to break out of our patterns. He knows when we're set and when we have a certain schedule and we have a certain work pattern we're used to and we have a certain social pattern we're used to and we have a certain gym pattern that we're used to and we have a certain vacation pattern that we're used to and we well, I already booked the tickets. Well, I got to pick up the kids. Well, I got to do this. Well, I got to do that. He knows how hard it is to break out of that. But this right now is an opportunity. And I'm not saying, look, there's, there's certainly grief that we feel from the things that we've lost because of the virus. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. I'm only saying there is also an opportunity here in the midst of everything being stripped away to consider repositioning ourselves, so to speak, because that might not necessarily be physically, to be missional, to actually follow Jesus. Now I know it's, the Acts 2 is very appealing, right? The church where everyone is, the, the place, I, I shouldn't even say, the, the place where everyone is gathered together and where what really matters is being real close, you know, having a tight-knit group, being very known, where that's the most important thing. And I'm not saying Look, those things are important, right? Community is essential, I would say. Accountability is essential. The word, prayer, worship, giving, those things are essential. But the movement of God, right, the narrative that is followed is not where people are permanently settled. It is where they are resettled for the advancement of the gospel. Now, what happens to Philip, okay, because the story follows Philip in Acts 8. He goes down to Samaria. And look what happens to Philip, okay? This is later in the passage, um, or later in the chapter, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So so, uh, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Let's, let's pause right here for a second. Can, can you imagine this? Like, can, can, yeah. 
Let's stay here. So can you imagine this? Like, like you're, <laughs> you go, you're on your way, and the Spirit literally talks, it tells you, like, go over to this chariot. And you go over to this chariot, and you just say, do you know what you're reading? And this person says, how can I unless someone tells me what this means? This is like the perfect tee-up to, to deliver the gospel. Like, I've never had this kind of experience where I've told, I've, I've asked someone, like, found someone reading the Bible and said, hey, do you know what that means? And they say, how can I unless someone tells me what it means? Like, isn't that, isn't that great? Like, let's read on verse 32. It says, now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Again, another just teed up question. That's from Isaiah 53, and it's talking, of course, about Jesus. Now let's read on. Verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Again, this guy's asking to get baptized. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And when is the last time, okay, when is the last time that you had an evangelism experience like that? Where you shared the gospel and the person was itching to know Jesus. Not just to know Jesus, okay, to be totally given over to Jesus, See, sometimes we just have to admit that the reason we're at the lake is not to fish. If we were really there to catch fish, then catching fish, we would go to where the fish are. For many of us, you know, I think we are more concerned about being friends with the fishermen than we are about catching fish. What opportunity does this season present one of the things that's happened is is that our roots have been loosened right because many of the things that three months ago you probably would have said you felt trapped in your pattern the pattern of home life work life social life and a break from our normal rhythms have revealed that they were not as necessary as we thought they were you know, I, uh, Boomi and I, we talk about this all the time, but I, I find myself wondering what a post-coronavirus world will be like, right? We're like, oh, I wonder, uh, what's it going to be like? Like, is, is sports going to come back? When's it going to come back? Um, are people going to travel? Like, what are movies going to be like? Are we going to be able to go to Disneyland? Like, you know, we're asking these questions, just kind of wondering. I'm not sure if you're doing that or not. But I think this is an opportunity for us 
to ask ourselves, what do we want our post-coronavirus lives to be like? Not what is the circumstance going to be, but, but what do I want my life to be about? And I'm not talking about refocusing our lives so we can better chase the American dream. I'm not saying, okay, now is a perfect chance for me to chase my dream job. Now is a perfect chance for me to go and live where I really want to live. Now is a perfect chance for me to go and to do this or that. I'm talking about this is a chance to reposition myself at a lake teeming with fish with very few fishermen. Reconsider your view of God. Reposition yourself for the mission of God. Here's the last thing I'd say. Resettle your heart in the hope of heaven. Resettle your heart in the hope of heaven. This is Philippians 3, 18. It says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And let me just tell you, the people, many of us who are, like if we have this inclination for the world to get back to the way that it's supposed to be, so that we can get back to the things that we miss, our bellies miss, right? Our worldly appetites that we miss, if our minds are set on earthly things, then our end is destruction. But verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Resettle your heart in the hope of heaven. God is offering us citizenship in heaven. That's what Jesus came to do. Right? The reason he came, the reason he died, the reason he rose again from the dead is so that for us, not just so that our lives would be secure in heaven, but so, you know, in the future, but so that our hope would be secure in heaven in the present. And that we would live here as ambassadors of that home for Christ. Rather than putting your hope in a building a home here, use this time to resettle your heart so that hope lies in heaven with Christ. Again, the post-coronavirus world will present us with a new normal in many ways. Probably the way we travel, the way we shop, the way we eat, probably even the way we say hi to one another. It's all going to be adjusted. But I ask you, will there be any change in the way that we hope? Now, I hope that our answer is yes. My prayer, I think my prayer for this whole thing, for, for us, for you guys, is that when we think of a pre-coronavirus life, you know, it won't be like pre-travel restriction, you know, pre-movie theater, pre-overly stuffed schedule, you know. Like, we won't think of a life when we used to have so many parties and so many vacations, and that won't be what we miss. 
My prayer is that when we think of a pre-coronavirus life, we will think that it was a pre-urgent, pre-missional life that we don't miss at all. I pray that for many of us, and I know that this, this isn't all of us, but for many of us, I pray that this will have been. When we look back on it in the future, because I've been thinking about that a lot, I hope when we look back on it in the future, we will think, wow, it was really a catalyst to awaken us from the slumber of just seeking an Acts 2 church when we live in a post-Acts 8 world. And I pray that our idols are exposed as our idols are exposed. So too is the treasure of knowing Christ, of repenting of sin, of growing in holiness, of living urgently and sacrificially for the gospel, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel as we hope in him alone. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much, God, that you are patient with us, that you are forgiving towards us, that you are gracious to us. God, even in the midst of a global pandemic, God, and there is certainly grief that we are experiencing, God. There is certainly pain and suffering that many are experiencing and yet, God, even in the midst of all this, there is this blessing, God, that you have for us. There is this opportunity of faith that you present to us. There is this exposure of false hope and this renewal of true, powerful, transformative hope that you, that you give to us, that you offer us, God, for those of us who don't know you, that you present to us today God more than us necessarily resettling our bodies even though I do pray that that would be what you convict us to do in many ways we pray that you would resettle our hearts in you in the hope of heaven in the in the power of mission God, in the, in the joy of your glory, we ask humbly, uh, in faith, and confidently knowing, God, that you hear us and that you will answer us. We thank you so much, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.